me lead us in prayer as we come to God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege it is to belong to your family, to call you our Heavenly Father. And so we pray now as we consider your precious word to us, your children, that you'd help me to preach it faithfully and that you'd help us all to bring glory to you in our family life as we live as children and parents. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, family life is one of the true tests of how, we, how much we have been transformed by the gospel. Our family life is one of the true tests of how much we have been transformed by the gospel. So the family is the place where very often you are free to be yourself. And it can bring out the best, but of course it can also bring out the worst as well. Uh, our life at home, I think it often reveals what we're really like as a person, uh, what we value, what we really care about, what we're living for. Uh, and so if you're a parent this morning, if you're a grandparent, what do you want for your children or for your grandchildren? What do you think would make someone to be a good parent or a bad parent? Or as a child of your parents, we all have parents, what do you want your parents to be like, whether or not they are like that? How do you relate to them? I think those questions or similar ones to them reveal a lot about how much we've actually grasped the gospel and allowed it to transform our lives. I think it's pretty safe to say that outside of the church, family life is very often very dysfunctional. Uh, I think last year or two years ago, France passed a law that allowed single women and lesbian or gay couples to conceive children through IVF and then become the legal parents of the child. I think those kind of uh, laws which deprive uh, you know, a child of having both a father and a mother, they, they reflect the moral poverty of the West very often as it turns away from the gospel. See, no longer is it considered important for a child to have a father and a mother or even to have two parents at all. One parent seems to be fine. Uh, and of course, around the world, birth rates are declining. Uh, as people choose uh, comfort and careers over family life. Career is a very good example of that, where the population is shrinking rapidly because there are less children being born than those people who are dying. Uh, even in Malaysia, if you go back to the previous generations, I think it's not unlikely for people to have seven, eight, nine children. But even if you have four children these days, you're considered rather ex extreme, I think, isn't it? Because I guess as parents, we know that having children is costly, having children is challenging, having children takes up your time, having children limits your freedom to do what you want to do when you want to do it. Uh, and so people choose cars and careers and comfort over children. Uh, but of course, if we've been transformed by the gospel, uh, our family life ought to be very different to the world around us. Uh, as we live according to God's will, we can not only be different to the world around us, but our family life can be a glorious testimony to the gospel uh, to people around us. It's not unusual for, some, for a non-believer to observe someone's family life, and that is one of the things that God uses to bring them to the Lord Jesus. 
Well, today we're looking at this passage, Ephesians 6, 1 to 4, but let me set, first set the context for us. Of course, Ephesians is about God's grand plan to unite all things under the rule of the Lord Jesus. You remember that key verse in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. God's eternal plan is to make known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. So God's plan is to bring everything under the rule of Jesus. And as we've read on in Ephesians, we've seen that this eternal plan, it centers on God's body or Christ's body, the church. Uh, Ephesians 3 verse 10 tells us that God's eternal purpose uh, in saving and transforming a global church from all the nations is uh, yet so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known uh, now, now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And thus, verse 21, uh, in the church and in Christ Jesus, uh, God will be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. So God has an eternal plan. It centers on Jesus. God is bringing all things under Jesus. And his plan is that through the church, he will be glorified uh, in the universe. And of course, this letter falls into two parts. The first part, what God has done through the gospel, chapters 1 to 3. The second part, chapters 4 to 6, how we are to respond, walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And in Visions 5, we've seen that a key aspect of that life worthy of the gospel, a spirit-filled life, was submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Uh, we are to recognize that the the order that God has established in our relationships, uh, and so live lives of willing submission as part of our willing submission to the Lord Jesus. And so we need to submit husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, wives submitting to their husbands as the church submits to Christ, children submitting to their parents, fathers disciplining their children, and next week slaves obeying their masters and masters not being harsh. In other words, family life is a key area in which we are to serve the Lord Jesus. Family life is a key part of the spirit-filled life. I think often we think of the spirit-filled life, we're thinking of all charismatic gifts and these kinds of things. But no, uh, one preacher puts it this way, the spirit-filled life is spectacularly ordinary. It's spectacularly ordinary. You live out a spirit-filled life under the rule of Jesus in your marriage, in your family, in your work. And as we do that, uh, and the watching world looks on, we shine forth God's wisdom uh, to the world around us, and indeed to the heavenly beings as well. So I hope that excites you then to consider how we can glorify God as in our family life. So let's begin with the first point, God's word to children. God's word to children. We've seen children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, notice Paul addresses children here directly, and it reminds us that children matter to God. They are a vital part of the church, and Paul assumes as he writes this letter that the children are sitting there with their parents, listening to the letter being read to them. See, the children are not considered to be a nuisance or a distraction, that they don't belong simply out in the cry room or in the Sunday school, but they actually belong with us in the church gathering. Uh, this reflects Jesus' teaching, of course. Remember in Luke chapter 18, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such, uh, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as 
these. Uh, there are some denominations, of course, where someone is only really considered a believer when they grow up to a certain age. They make a public declaration of faith and they receive adult baptism. I have uh, quite a number of friends who hold to those beliefs and uh, we can be partners in the gospel. But we're reminded here, children, youth, are valuable members of the church regardless of their age. Now, what does Paul mean by children here? I think that's an important question. I think in one sense, we are always children of our parents, of course, sons and daughters. But there is also something that seems very wrong about a grown man, say 50 years old, who's still living with his parents and they're cooking for him and doing his washing and, and, and he's obeying every single thing that his parents say. He asks permission, oh, can I go out with my friends tonight? And, you know, the 70-year-old mother says, no, you stay home with me. You know? No, I, I think it's quite clear here that by children, Paul means those who are still being brought up, those who are still living at home under the authority uh, and protection of their parents. We see that in the command in verse 4 to fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So children are those who are still being brought up. We see a similar thing in chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. Uh, it's talking about the church, and, and, and Paul teaches us that our aim should be to build up the church to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. So the point there is talking about the church, but it's telling you something about children too. There's a point where you stop being a child and you grow up to maturity, manhood. Right? So the goal of parenting then is that your children will grow up. Uh, they will become mature adults and in that sense no longer be children anymore. And of course, as they then become uh, adults, then they're no longer bound by this command, right, to do everything that their parents say. But while we are children, while we are still living under the authority and protection of our parents, it's God's expectation and command that we will obey our parents. Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And the in the Lord part there, it's indicating that our obedience to our parents is, is ultimately part of our obedience to Jesus. Our submission to our parents is part of our submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's something that we actually need to take very seriously indeed. Uh, and so if there's any of us here, maybe we're teenagers or children still, still in the room today, then this is important. Obey your parents. Listen to their authority. Uh, do it, not because they're always right and because it's always fair, because often they'll mess up, but do it because you love Jesus. And so as you do the chores, you observe the curfew or whatever the rule is, willingly and joyfully because you love Jesus. It's right. It's godly. Remember the Lord Jesus when he was a child, Luke chapter 2. His parents came to take him back from the temple. He submitted to them. We should do the same. Now, the parallel passage emphasizes this even more, of course, in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, I'm a parent, and I know that so often I don't get it right. But, of course, that doesn't mean that the, for the teenager or the child, that because the parent got it wrong sometimes, 
that this command is somehow exempt from you now. Parents like me need to work on our part uh, to be more fair, fair, to be less provoking to anger. But of course, children need to work on their part too. And obedience to parents is not conditional on the parents always getting it right. And so for those who are still living under parents, don't be a rebellious or a wayward child. Pray that the gospel will change your heart so that you willingly and joyfully submit to your parents despite all of their flaws. Now, of course, there was the disclaimer here we noted in the kids' talk, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Uh, it, what it means is that uh, because our submission to our parents is part of our submission to Jesus, then if they tell us to do something Jesus doesn't want, don't read the Bible, don't follow Jesus, don't get baptized, whatever it is, our first submission is always to Jesus. Children, obey your parents in everything, but this pleases the Lord. I think like marriage, our life as children is meant to picture the gospel because we're not just children of our earthly parents, but ultimately we're children of our heavenly father. He's adopted us into his family. And so in that sense, as we uh, obey our parents and live under their authority, it's so something of the beauty or so of being a child of our Heavenly Father, and it pleases Him too. Now, of course, whilst obeying our parents may end when we grow up and become adults, honouring our parents doesn't expire. So verse 2 says, honour your father and your mother. Now, normally, the way that you honour your father and your mother is by obeying them. Uh, generally, it's fairly disrespectful uh, to ignore what someone tells you to do. Uh, but it's not the only way that we honour them. We honour our parents by embracing their teaching. We honour our parents by accepting their discipline. We honour our parents by seeking their advice. We honour our parents by not talking back to them. Uh, we honour our parents by speaking well of them to other people around us. We honour our parents by living a godly life that honours the family name that they have passed down to us. Uh, we honour our parents by caring for them in their old age. Jesus is very upset with the Pharisees and scribes in, in Mark chapter 7 because they've made up a rule that if you give money to the temple, then you no longer have to use it to look after your parents anymore. And Jesus is very angry. He calls them hypocrites. Part of honouring your parents is providing for them in their old age. Now, could there, there could be much more besides here. But whilst obedience is especially for children who are growing up, Honouring our parents never expires. And so whether we are young or old, whether our parents are 30 or 90 or 100 or whatever it is, we must seek to honour them. Now Paul tells us why we should honour them in verse 2. He says, Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. So both the command here and the reason come from the Ten Commandments. What does Paul mean here that it is the first commandment with a promise? Is he saying it's the first of the Ten Commandments that has a promise attached to it? That's certainly the case. Is it saying that the command to honour our parents is related to the first commandment, that is to have uh, no other gods uh, except God? Uh, I think both of those explanations make sense here, and they're certainly both true. But the basic point here, I think, is that honouring our parents is a very important part of worshipping God. 
This is what John Stott writes in his uh, commentary on Ephesians. He says, at least during our childhood, our parents represent God to us and mediate to us both his authority and his love. We are to honor them, that is, acknowledge their God-given authority, and so give them not only our obedience, but our love and respect as well. It's true, isn't it? I think as very often as a, as a child is growing up, what they think God is like is basically like their, their parents, They're loving like the mother, uh, you know, someone who's to be respected like the father, and so on. And I think that's why a failure to honor parents in the Old Testament carries such an extreme penalty. Uh, it's actually the death penalty. Have a look at Leviticus chapter 20, for example. Anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He's cursed his father or his mother. His blood be upon them. There's a number of other verses like that. It shows just how seriously God takes it that we honor our parents. Uh, but it is interesting to note here that Paul doesn't quote this particular threat to motivate us to honor our parents, does he? He could have done that, but he doesn't. Uh, he chooses instead uh, to quote, to point us to God's promise in order to motivate us. That's verse 3, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. And it's a reminder, I guess, here that ultimately it's grace that motivates obedience, not guilt. Uh, you can say, well, if you don't do this, then this is the threat that's going to happen to you. But that generally doesn't motivate people. It doesn't generally change the heart. It's grace that changes the heart. And that's what we've seen throughout Ephesians. Chapters 1 to 3, this is what God has done. Chapters 4 to 6, this is how you respond. Now, in the Old Testament, of course, prosperity and long life were tied to the promised land. Uh, and so as Israel uh, obeyed their parents in the promised land and so on, it would lead to prosperity and blessing. But we've seen in Ephesians 1 that our promised land is not the land of Israel. We're not on a pilgrimage to Palestine. Our promised land, our inheritance is heaven. Right? We await a heavenly inheritance with God in his presence, not just enjoying physical blessings, but we experience the spiritual ones now, the physical ones at the end. And so Paul points us to this promise here. Uh, he's essentially saying honoring and obeying your parents is the path to life and blessing, both now and the life to come. Now, it's not prosperity gospel. It's not saying, oh, you honor your parents and you're going to be prosperous and rich. But it's just a general reminder that living God's way is best for you. It's best for you now. And ultimately, living God's way leads us uh, to heaven to be with God. So our parents, especially if they're Christians, are a precious blessing that we should never take for granted. And so why not consider uh, after this service thinking how you can honor your parents. Maybe you could text them and say, uh, I thank God for giving you as my parents. They're going to might be a bit shocked. They're like, what do you want? Uh, you know, do you need money or something? <laughs> no, just tell you that I love you. I don't say it enough, you know. <laughs> I think, what happened to him at church this morning? Yeah. Uh, well, in verse 4, Paul then turns to the fathers, and this is the second point, God's word to fathers. Now, notice again, the command in verse 4 is given specifically to the fathers. Of course, both parents have a responsibility to, to parent the children. Uh, mothers are not being excluded here. Uh, Timothy was Paul's partner in mission, of course, and we know that his father was a Greek uh, and his mother was a Jew. Uh, in 2 Timothy 1, where Paul commends his mother Eunice, and his grandmother Lois, 
for their part in nurturing Timothy's faith, presumably in the absence of the father. And Proverbs also expects that both parents are involved. So Proverbs 1, 8 and 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for the neck. So both parents are involved in parenting. And I think every one of us will agree that mothers are extremely important for a child. But here in Ephesians 6, Paul specifically addresses fathers. There's a Greek word for parents. He used it in verse 1, children obey your parents. That's not the word he uses here. There's a word for fathers, honour your father and your mother. That's the word here. Right? So why does he only address fathers? It is because, of course, God's design is that fathers are the head of the family. Remember Ephesians 5 verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. The father is to be the head of the family and therefore to take the primary responsibility in teaching the children. And that headship in the family, it ultimately reflects the headship of God the Father over the church. So remember Ephesians 3 and verse 14. For praise, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family, you look at the footnote there, it literally says, uh, from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named. Uh, so fathers, in other words, are the head of the biological family because God the Father is the head of the spiritual family, the church. And as spiritual leaders of the families, uh, of our biological families, that is a responsibility that we must take very seriously indeed. So what is God's word to the fathers this evening? Uh, it's not just a word for those who are currently fathers, but of course some of us may become fathers one day. Uh, some of us may know other fathers that we need to encourage, so we all need to listen. What is God's word to fathers? Of course, of all the things that Paul could possibly say to fathers, verse 4 is probably not what we're expecting. Verse 4 says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. It's very interesting, isn't it? Paul assumes children will obey their parents. But when he addresses the fathers themselves, he urges them not to forcefully exercise their authority over their children. They are rather to exercise the gentle restraint of that authority. It's the same in marriage. The husband is to be the head of the wife, but that doesn't mean that he uses his authority as the husband to force his wife to do whatever he wants. No, that's not what Christian marriage is like at all. The husband leads in the marriage by sacrificially serving the wife. So here, fathers lead their children not by uh, you know, dictatorship and forceful uh, exercise of their authority, not by being harsh and direct, but by being gentle, not provoking them to anger. Now, William Barclay, he's another commentator, he draws out just how countercultural this is in the Roman culture of Paul's day. Listen to this quote. It's, kind of, uh, it's quite extreme, I think. A Roman father had absolute authority over his family. He could sell them, his children, as slaves. He could make them work in the fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands, for the law was in his own hands, 
and punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. That was first century parenting. I hope that we are horrified as we read that. That is, uh, th those kind of abuses by fathers are something that should profoundly disturb us, uh, just as domestic violence, sexual abuse, and these kind of things today ought to, ought to disturb us greatly. Christian fathers are not to be like this. We are to be like the heavenly father. What is God our heavenly father like? He's nurturing, he's loving, he's patient, he's caring, he's servant-hearted, he's other person-centered. So I think as fathers or would-be fathers, this is a warning that we need to hear very, very often. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. It's actually very easy to do, right? Uh, to be too impatient, to be too strict, to be too inconsistent. Uh, I know my own failings uh, in this area. Uh, for those who are fathers among us, I, I'm sure you're aware of your own. Some fathers are so forceful, so intimidating, so inflexible, so harsh, so distant, so angry that it causes such deep hurt to their children that it alienates them not only from themselves as their father, but alienates them from God as well. I've ministered to a lot of young adults over the years, and I've frequently observed how disastrous it is to have an absent, angry, and sometimes abusive father. It's devastating for a child. A good parent will never simply command their child to do things. I'm your father. Do as I say. No with no explanation, with no discussion, full stop. An authoritative uh, approach to parenting, it will be effective in one sense. They'll be so afraid of you, they will do whatever you want. But you will not win their hearts, and you will not change them in the long term. They'll begrudgingly do what you want while they still have to. But one day, when they get their own choice, they'll leave. And most likely they won't just leave your home, they will also leave the church because the way that they've been parented is nothing like God the Father whom their parents uh, profess to follow. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now again, the parallel passage in Colossians 3 puts it slightly differently. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Uh, so what embitters or discouraged as a child, it's when we're unfair, when we're inconsistent, when we're strict, when we're forceful, when we're harsh, when we're critical, when we withhold our love, when we only say we'll love you if you meet these conditions, if you get straight A's or whatever it is. Uh, we discourage them when we have favorites, uh, when we put our children down to boost our own ego. We could go on, we can make a long list here of things to discourage a child. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, they'll become distant from you become distant from Jesus. But of course, not only do we have a warning here to heed, but there's an encouragement to embrace as well. That's verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's very interesting that the Bible says very little directly on the topic of uh, parenting. I mean, the entire book of Ephesians, there is one verse on the topic of parenting directly. 
Of course, there's plenty of things across the Bible that we could apply to parenting in life. Lots of different ways, and the best of parenting books will do that. I'm sure if you go out and look at the parenting books later, it's not just going to be a one-sentence book that they charge you 50 ringgit for. It's going to probably be a thick book with a few hundred pages of stuff in it. Uh, but and, and so it can be difficult as a parent to sift through all the parenting books. Each has their own stories. Each has their own approaches. Uh, perhaps even their own science to to back them up. I remember reading some of these when I first became a parent, and uh, one says, "Oh, you should sleep train your child by." Uh, you know, letting them cry it out, and another one says, "Oh, you shouldn't let them cry because if they cry, they're going to have, uh, you're going to grow up with depression and, and permanent emotional damage, and you get anxious as a parent. You don't want to do the wrong thing. You know, should I let them cry or shouldn't I let them cry? Which one is right?" And, and so you buy more books and you get more confused. Now, there's much to learn from books. Books are good. You should go and buy them and you should read them. Right? Uh, I'm not. Uh, if you want somewhere to start, I don't know what books you brought, but maybe Shepherding a Child's Heart is a great one. Ted Tripp or Paul Tripp's Parenting, 14 Gospel Principles. Tim Kimmel has a good book called Grace-Based Parenting. Uh, if they're out there, maybe you should go and buy it later. But as helpful as all those parenting books are, it's easy for them to cloud this one single point that the Bible makes again and again on the topic of parenting. This is it. Bring up your children to know the law. That's what that Old Testament reading was about from Deuteronomy 6. Remember, Israel is commanded in, in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And the very next word in that chapter is directed to parents. In verse 6, these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so the father is almost representative of the child's experience of God. The child thinks that God is like their earthly father and mother. They are the primary teacher and model. And so forget all the other stuff that is in the parenting books. This is what it's all about. The job of the parent is to teach the child to love and serve the Lord. Don't provoke them to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So this is the primary goal that we are to have as parents. It's easy to get caught up with all the other worldly stuff instead, isn't it? That we miss the point. We spend so much time worrying and planning about our children's education. You know, which school should we send them to? Where should they go to university? Uh, you know, taking them to all the tuition classes so that they'll get good grades in school. We're going to make sure that they learn all the different languages, you know, BM and Chinese, and whatever, and uh, French and German and every other language as well. And don't forget the hobbies as well. You know, they must be doing swimming and sports. Piano is essential for an Asian child. Maybe guitar if, uh, we, if we like. As parents, you want to give your children the best, don't you? And so we work hard so that we can give them a nice house. So they can have the best toys to play with. They can have good clothes to wear. And we, of course, we mean well. We do all these things because we love the children. But that approach to parenting is not distinctly Christian at all, is it? That's what everyone else is doing out there. 
who doesn't believe in Jesus. You talk to your non-Christian neighbor, it's exactly what they're doing too. And the problem is, of course, that the Bible's just not really concerned with any of those things. They can even distract us from what matters the most, that our children grow up to know and love Jesus. It doesn't matter whether they can speak lots of languages. It doesn't matter where they go to school. It doesn't matter whether they can play piano well or not. It's fine to learn those things, but it's not the point. We had to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline means we actively teach them the right way to go. We are correcting their behavior, forming their character, and discipline, of course, is essential to that, an expression of love. Remember Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. The Lord disciplines the one that he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father and spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In other words, a loving parent will discipline their children. They won't leave their children to make up their own minds about what what, what makes a, a good life, whether it's allowing them to live however they like and just learn from their mistakes or believe whatever they like. We have a goal in parenting to bring up our children to know and love Jesus. And so we're intentional. We actively encourage them in that direction because the world out there is not going to teach your children to follow Jesus. You send them to the public school. They're not going to teach you to teach the children to follow Jesus, quite the opposite. You're not going to learn about following Jesus in your tuition class or in your piano class, are you, or on the sports field. If you don't tell them about Jesus at home, they're not going to hear about him. And not only do we discipline them, guiding them in God's ways, but we bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. That is, we bring them up to know the gospel, to believe it, to live it out. And of course, that means if we are to do that, we must first know God's word for ourselves. Uh, some of us, I take it, feel very inadequate to teach our children about Jesus. Perhaps our parents didn't teach us when we were children, uh, or perhaps we converted later in life and we've never really had an example of what a Christian parent uh, is like. But we must learn the gospel. We must go on learning the gospel if we're to pass it on to the next generation. And we must make sure that fathers don't outsource this responsibility to others. I think we know what it's like. Sometimes the father outsources discipleship to the mother. And sometimes the mother passes on the job of discipleship to the Sunday school teachers. Bless them. And sometimes it's neglected altogether because we're so distracted with our careers or whatever that the only person bringing up the, the child is the, is the maid in the house or perhaps the grandparents who may or may not believe in Jesus. The single biggest influence on a child's life is their parents. It's not the Sunday school teacher's job upstairs to disciple our children. It's the parent's job. It's the father's job to do that. 
And what parents most need to pass on to their children is not money or education or a better life, but the gospel of Jesus. How do you actually do that? I think it's not that, it's not that hard. Uh, it's, it's more than just having a devotion time, although that's a pretty good way to start for us. Uh, so it's a very simple formula. Bath, Bible, bed. Yeah? So, you know, we clean them up, whatever. Then we read the Bible, usually um, one child at a time. takes a couple of minutes for each child, pray, and then they go to bed. Yeah? Uh, for a few minutes, we read an age-appropriate story from a, kid's, from a kid's Bible. I have a YouTube channel you might know. There's a, there's a thing there called Ministry at Home, the how and why of family discipleship. And I give like a very practical example of exactly how do you do it, what resource to use for each age, and so on. It's not that complicated. You can, you can just watch the video and you can get started. But family devotion is a good beginning, but it's not, not the whole thing, right? If you read that Deuteronomy passage, it talks about all of life, when you come in, when you go out, when you're on the road, etc. And so it happens. Discipleship happens when you're eating meals together. It happens when you're playing games. It happens when you're driving the car. It happens when you're going grocery shopping, if you're intentional about it. And that means that we need to spend time with our children. Not just quality time, but quantity of time. You can't disciple someone when you don't see them. Parenting can't be rushed. Quality conversations can't be forced. It all requires time, intentionality, and effort. Of course, as a father, you can't disciple your children when you're always at work. How can you do that? You can't disciple your children if they sleep before you get home. You can't disciple your children while you're watching TV instead of talking to them. Research says that many children watch three to four hours of television every day and less than 15 minutes total in conversation with their fathers. Three to four hours television, 10 to 15 minutes talking to their father. If that's the numbers, which, which way are they going to go? They're going to go with the TV way, isn't it? Netflix approach. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, uh, we've almost come to the end, but I've got three final comments from the context of Ephesians that I think applied to parenting here. The first one, uh, give your children a good marriage. Uh, I don't mean uh, arrange a marriage for them, right? Uh, <laughs> just in case you were thinking that. I mean, model for them a good marriage with your, with your spouse. I remain convinced that apart from the gospel itself, taught and lived, the best thing a parent can give to their children is an example of a godly marriage. Okay? So love your spouse in all the ways that Ephesians 5 talks about. Create that safe environment for the children to grow up, to know and love the Lord. Work on your marriage. It's a good way of loving your children. Secondly, bring up your children in the church. Bring up your children in the church. And we've seen in the book of Ephesians that God graciously saves us not only as individuals but into God's family. I'm sure you've heard it takes a village to raise a child. Right? I think we should alter that. Uh, it takes a church to raise a Christian child. It takes a church to raise a Christian child. And yes, we shouldn't diminish the responsibility of the parents, the father to disciple their children, but parents should never parent alone. 
Children are to be brought up in the community of the church. The body grows as we all speak the truth in love. And nothing delights me more than seeing people here playing with our children and talking to them and, and, and telling them about Jesus. So, yes, send your children to Sunday school and youth. That's important. Allow the children to have their own Christian friends and be, get involved in the life of the children in the local church. That's all very important. Uh, it takes a, a church to grow a Christian child. And third, finally, remember the sovereignty of God. Remember the sovereignty of God. Ephesians reminds us that God is the God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, I think as parents, we, we feel inadequate most of the time. We are aware of our failures. I think if any of us here, as we think about our own parents, I'm pretty sure it won't take you very long to think about their flaws. Uh, you can think of their failures pretty quickly, I guess. Uh, perhaps this talk has made you even more guilty. I don't know. So it's crucial to remember, ultimately, these precious children, they belong to God. Right? And he loves them much more than we ever can. We know we can't save our own children. God predestines them. God elects them. God saves them by his grace. It's God who gives his spirit to change them and transform them uh, from within, that they can walk in the good works he's prepared for them. And so as parents, we need to learn to trust in the sovereignty of God, to trust that ultimately their future is in his hands uh, and not ours, and that is a very good thing. And we must never forget Ephesians 2 verse 8, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. You don't get to heaven by being a good parent, praise God. You don't get to heaven by being a wonderfully obedient child, praise God. We're saved by grace alone. And so no matter how much we failed in the past, we can rejoice in God's grace and we can try again. Because as Christians, it is a tremendous privilege to belong to God's family, to call God our heavenly father, and as those who've been given such blessings through the gospel, let's live out the gospel in our family life. As we honor our parents, as we raise our children, let's be different to the world around us. And so let's be a wonderful testimony to the watching world of the beauty of the gospel, of the wonder of belonging to the family of God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us to be part of your great family, the church. Lord, thank you that you love us because of your grace and not our works. Help us to live out your good order, honoring and obeying our parents, lovingly disciplining our children. Help us to bring them up to know and love the Lord Jesus. Forgive us where we have failed. Empower us by your spirit to live your way. And may you use our family life to draw more people to the Lord Jesus for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.